lasso. We come to the last phase in the cycle of the four immeasurables. And I was really quite surprised today with a little glimmering, some kind of insight that came up. And I thought, gosh, it took me a long time to see that one. I'm really slow. It's this. That I think it's clear to all of us, at least conceptually, how the evenness of shamatha, it's called equipoise, nyamsha, evenly placing the mind in shamatha, free of the imbalances of laxity and excitation, that why this is the foundation for vipassana, you use that balance and then vipassana. So that's all very clear by now, isn't it? And then I was thinking, as I was you know, just sowing the seeds or just seeing what would come up, I wasn't even sowing seeds, they're already there, for equanimity, upeksha. Upeksha has exactly the same role for the cultivation of bodhicitta. Exactly. And that is upeksha, equanimity, especially in this Mahayana context, the Indo-Tibetan context, of really overcoming the imbalances of I like, I don't like, indifferent, but just focusing primarily on I like and I don't like. You know, as soon as we slip into the I, well, all three, but I'm just going to focus on I like and I don't like. It's excitation and laxity. It's these are cognitive and affective imbalances, and it's attachment and it's aversion. They're both dehumanizing because now we're just oh, this person is, this person is agreeable, this person agreeable, beautiful, ugly, too old, whatever, whatever. It's just seeing appearances, seeing its and then responding to the its as its, right? And as one cultivates, many, many, many people, including myself, are very inspired by the Mahayana ideal, the Bodhisattva way of life, derive great inspiration from some such classic texts as a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. And we may cultivate bodhicitta, try to cultivate the six perfections, all of this is wonderful practice, but, in, but if the basis in equanimity isn't there, However much you may develop your compassion, your great compassion, loving kindness, and all of that, it's always going to have a faulty basis because the craving and attachment is going to slip in and the aversion, the dislike is going to slip in. So even if it's really strong, it's going to still be like rusty metal. It's going to have some contamination in it, right? And equanimity is that which purifies it. And it, in a way, you know, we can speak in such lofty language, the Bodhisattva, the Mahayana, but I like to come back to ordinary language and cultivating upeksha, this even-heartedness, is just being wonderfully and homogeneously human. Really, isn't it? I mean, just in simple terms. It means that we recognize ourselves as human. We don't take ourselves as a disagreeable object, as, oh, I suck, I'm such a loser, I can't stem, I hate myself, blah, blah, blah. You know, I-it relationship with the self. That's, that's dehumanizing. And, oh, I'm so fabulous. I'm just incredible. I'm just, oh, oh, me, 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 me. Narcissism, pride, arrogance. I've turned myself into an it again. Oh, my favorite it. Me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's dehumanizing. It kind of looks funny. I mean, it is funny. But it's dehumanizing. You know, you're not an it. You're not a really beautiful it. You're a human being with a Buddha nature, which is way beyond it, ittiness, right? And so, it's exactly the same role. And that is, if one really focuses on these four immeasurables culminating in upeksha, 
and really when quite homogeneously. Remember the, the words of the abbot of the monastery where I studied 35, no, 36 years ago. Again, Lothan Gatsu in the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics in Dharamsala when I asked him, you know, how shall I understand all sentient beings? You remember the answer? And he said, every sentient being you encounter, every sentient being you encounter, that's all sentient beings. Encounter directly or encounter with the mind. We can be reading, reading about Julius Caesar. I guess I just, I read about Julius Caesar. Okay, he's now part of my world. He's part. Hitler, yep, I know him. I read about him. I know a lot about Hitler. Okay, he's part of my world. I encountered him. He died before I was born, but yeah, he's part of my world. And, and so forth and so on. It's all of those that you contact by way, by way of your senses, including conceptual, right? All sentient beings. And to be homogeneously viewing oneself as a human being is a sentient being. And of course, Upeksha is not just for human beings. It's not anthropocentric, right? It's sentient being-centric, biocentric. And that is attending all sentient beings and simply attending to each one as a sentient being evenly. That's just, in a way, that's being decent. One can say, oh, it's saintly, it's bodhisattva-like, it's angelic, and so forth. But what it really is, is just being decent, isn't it? Because anything less than that is kind of indecent. Isn't it? I think so. I mean, it's an I-it relationship. That's kind of indecent. That's dehumanizing. It's not nice. And whether one is infatuating over some gorgeous woman or being disgusted at somebody who has skin disease or what have you, it's, it's kind of indecent. And so really realizing upeksha is basically being decent and achieving shamatha as being sane. So do I have any takers for anybody who want to be sane and decent? <laughs> Good, got even the skeptic. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, in terms of the uh, model that I've, I've, I've conjured up, drawing from Indian Ayurvedic, Tibetan medicine, and then Buddhist psychology, the four aspects of mental balance, thinking of the four. The, the shamatha is really all about developing attentional and cognitive balance. It's not just attentional. Because if you're able to sustain your attention Without, without laxity, without dullness, then right in there, that is right, how do you say, cheek by jowl, right next to cognitive balance of seeing, in the seeing, let, let there be just a scene. Why? Because you're not throwing all kinds of junk on it, right? Conceptualization, OCDD, is not being projected. So you're not entering into cognitive hyperactivity disorder because you're attending closely with stability and clarity. But because you're attending closely with stability and clarity, you're also not going into a cognitive deficit of being AWOL on reality. So the shamatha, within this fourfold model of mental health, shamatha is really very much about achieving both attentional and cognitive balance. But when we look at the four immeasurables, four immeasurables, they're very much about cognitive, which has to do with aspirations, desires, and intentions, right? Loving kindness is an aspiration. Compassion the same, empathetic joy can be spun as an aspiration, but also as an emotion. Equanimity can also be seen as an emotion, but also seen as an aspiration. May we all be free of attachment for those who are near and aversion for those who are far. So the, culti the cultivation of the culmination of those four. Really, I'd like to have a celebration. We should have, we should have equanimity day. You know, once a year, equanimity day, the culmination of the four immeasurables. Because this is really now about cognitive and affective balance. Cognitive balance, cognitive balance. Not too much desire and intention. Not too little. 
and of the right kind. That's cognitive balance. In other words, we have authentic desires, but we don't get too caught up in, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, you know, that's, and then not too caught up in, oh, I give up hope, I give up hope, I give up hope. You know, balancing right there. Cultivating authentic desires, motivations that are truly meaningful, beneficial for self and others. That's just sensible. Releasing altogether dysfunctional desires. And then in terms of sheer magnitude, how much desire, finding the right pitch, like a guitar string. Right? So that's absolutely built into the four measurables. And then emotional regulation. Emotional balance. Affective balance. Well, that's exactly built into a peksha. It's very much part of, well, we know that, but part of empathetic joy, love and kindness, compassion, how they all balance each other, all of this designed to bring about both cognitive and affective balance. So I'm kind of, wow, that's really cool. Really, it's really quite amazing. It just occurred to me recently. So both of these, both of these, Modes of balance, all about balance. The cognitive and the affective, the cognitive and attentional, coming together to make a truly, how do you say, sane, exuberantly, marvelously sane human being. And there's a foundation for reaching the path. If one now comes back to classic Buddhist teachings, reaching the path, reaching the path, and let's focus on the path that really, I think, pretty much oriented towards, many people here are oriented towards, bodhisattva path, reaching that path such that, that your mind becomes bodhicitta and arises spontaneously. Someone was just, just tell, telling me about experience of when seeing a person in difficulty, finding that Donglen just arose spontaneously, spontaneously, without thinking, oh, now I should practice Donglen. How do I do that? Just, that's where it really starts to be uncontrived. And then it goes deeper and deeper, Donglen, leads right on to bodhicitta. And so whatever comes up, some event arises, adversity, felicity, and whatever the question, bodhicitta is the answer. And it arises spontaneously. Well, when bodhicitta arises spontaneously, and it's based upon, and here's the deal, it's based upon equanimity. If it's not based upon equanimity, it's not bodhicitta. It's faulty bodhicitta, which is then not bodhicitta. Right? It's got to be there. Just like you'll never achieve vipassana without shamatha, ever. You'll never achieve bodhicitta without equanimity. Never happen. Cannot happen. It's a built-in defect. You've got to get that defect out. Right? So for both of these then, coming in from the four measurables culminating in upeksha, coming with shamatha, neither one of those is sufficient for achieving the path, to reach the path, the Mahayana path, path of accumulation. But bump that, bump that upeksha, that equanimity up to great loving kindness, great compassion, the extraordinary resolve, and you're on a slippery slope to bodhicitta, and that, yeah, and then you reach the path, and then bump that vipassana, that shamatha up over to vipassana, and then you, with the vipassana sealing of the sealing of the bodhicitta, achieve the medium stage, the second stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation, and you're irreversible. You are now just, you have a, an eternity membership in bodhisattva club until it expires because you've become a Buddha. You like to be part of that club? I think that's, that, that's what life is for. So, the second point I want to raise was this issue of path. What I'm saying here is utterly classic for ho the whole Indo-Tibetan current. 
all of that. It goes to Mongolia. It flowed out to East Asia to some extent. It's certainly compatible with all of East Asian Buddhism. But in terms of really studying this at length, nobody did it or has done it like the Tibetans and the Mongolians. Studying these five paths, the ten bhumis and so forth, the whole map, the great map to enlightenment. And here's how to enter the path. And this is what, frankly, this is what um, chucked me out of just carrying on with a classic Tibetan Buddhist monastic education. It's exactly this point. Uh, I was fluent in Tibetan. We studied all the basic Buddhist psychology, logic, um, introductory philosophy, the Dura, Lodic, Dadic. We studied all that. I was in with the Tibetans, memorized the Abhisamalankara, memorized the path of Madhyamakavatara, full stream. I was not feeling out. I was doing okay. I was one of the gang. Everybody else was Tibetan. You know, cruising along, I was doing fine. Tibetans would come and watch the white guy debate. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I was the only one. They really would. They go, wow. I think it was like watching a dancing bear, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and so I, there I was, I was, you know, because the other Westerners got sick and left. I mean, I got really sick. But one of them got sick, got hepatitis, went back, and eventually became the first Western geishe, George Dreyfus, outstanding scholar. Another one, the Dane, Lars Mikkelsen, got hepatitis, went home, back to Denmark, because the three of us were three white guys in the, uh, in the school when it first opened, July 1973. And then Lars Mikkelsen got hepatitis. He also went home, came back, and then he got, and he came right back. He got healed and came right back, and then he got cholera. That was grotesque. It's a really awful disease. He really suffered and happily didn't die, but he went home and he didn't come back. I almost died. But I had the assurance from the junior tutor of the Dalai Lama that if I stayed, I wouldn't die. So I said, okay, I'll stay. So, but what kicked me out was after finishing all of that and looking at the prospect, I finished all the introductory training. All, everyone, five, just, just like Tibetan, <laughs> like all the Tibetan monks. And I was looking at them the next six years, and the next six years were to study the five paths and the ten Bodhisattva grounds or bumis, the whole of it. The Abhisamalankara with commentaries, sub-commentaries, sub-sub-commentaries, debating at five hours a day, and there's your next six years. And I looked at that, but something intervened. It was a, uh, it was a meditation retreat in which I got to look at my mind for 11 hours a day. And I had just two words after watching my mind for, for 11 hours a day. Oh, crap. <laughs> that was just that pretty well summed it all up. This is the mind I'm going to bring into the next six years to study, study all the details, all the phases, the nuances, the ways of debating on multiple perspectives, a multiple philosophy, philosophical system, chitta matra, svatantikam, prasankha madhyamika, the ten bumis, the pure bumis, the qualities of enlightenment, and I'm going to study all of that with this. Oh crap! And I thought I can't do that. It's just too much of a disengagement from this junkyard that I euphemistically call my mind. And it was really, it was an existential moment. I just thought, there's no way. It's going to, it just, I can't do it. It's just the disparity is too awful. And so I went and had and requested and was granted personal interview with His Holiness, audience with His Holiness. And I just told him I can't do it. I can't do it. Not with this mind. 
I don't want to be studying the path of preparation and the path of seeing and the path of meditation and the nine bhumis and the path of meditation and all the qualities of enlightenment when I'm sitting here with a mind that's like a junkyard. It's just, the disparity is just unbearable. And all I want to do is, I just want to focus on how can I possibly clean up my act so I might possibly in this lifetime get to the first stage, the lowest stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. And I have a broad notion already, Yeshinga Mantagi had already taught us the big picture. And I received it many times later and eventually studied the text also. And, uh, but I said, I just can't do it. I just want to focus on the basics. I want to focus on the Satipatthana, the real muscle of Vipassana to get there and to seal your achievement of the first stage, second stage. And my heart was on my sleeve. It really was. Very personal, this. My heart, my heart was on my sleeve because it was just perfectly clear. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I, my heart would not be in it. And yet, I had done well in the school. His Holiness had encouraged me to go to that school. My, the abbot, who was, who was my abbot, really valued my being in the school. He, he was happy I was there. Uh, the Tibetans would come and watch the dancing bear. You know? <laughs> and, and I thought, if His Holiness says, that's the stupidest decision I can ever imagine. You're giving up this whole education because wah, 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 because my, you know, your mind isn't up to your, spe up to your specifications. And I thought if he says that, I'll just be crushed, but I still can't do it. I still can't do it. And I was just, my heart was on my sleeve. I thought if he tell me, that's just an incredibly stupid decision, and you should reverse it and go back and finish your education, um, I would have just been in a terrible quandary. And so my heart was on the sleeve. And I presented, this is, I can't do it. And this is why. And he said, very good. Very good. <laughs> and I said, I can't get caught up in all those sub-sub commentaries and all that stuff. Yeah, it's true. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Very good. You want to study Sadhapatthana? Good. Here's one of my tutors. He'll, tr he'll help you. Very good. <laughs> my heart just went into complete meltdown, like, oh man, is this man my guru. And he really is my lama. He's really my teacher. So, so where have the five paths gone? For those of us who've been around Tibetan Buddhist circles for a while, where's the five paths gone? Where's talk of it, apart from academic circles, where you're, you're going through your monastic training and learning about theoretically, where's it gone? We hear about three retreats. We hear about one-month Vajrasattva retreats, 10-day Shamatha retreats, doing Nyukne retreats, Dupchen retreats, all kinds of mantra retreats, visualization, Dumo retreats, Po retreats, Jit retreats, Dzogchen retreats, Mahamudra retreats. Where's the let's achieve, let's reach the Bodhisattva path retreat? Has that been offered recently? I was just checking a translation I did. Of, it's called Naked Awareness. It's the auxiliary cha uh, chapters that Kamachamerabachi wrote upon the conclusion of A Spacious Path of Freedom, which I, which I translated. And so he added a whole bunch of chapters. And the second to last chapter is how to proceed along the grounds and paths by way of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And he maps the different stages, the four yogas on Mahamudra, the Tekchut, the Tutkel, the four stages of kind of the 
uh, realization on the Tutgel, the direct crossing over. He takes all of these men as a consummate master. He found exactly what he could do consummately well, because he was patriarch of both traditions. And he's an extraordinary scholar, uh, hence kind of a secondary tutor for, for, the, for the fifth Dalai Lama. And uh, he puts this all together. It was like a great weave. Here are the five paths, here are the ten bumis. Here's how Mahamudra, four realizations, map on. Here's how Tekchut, breakthrough, the Tutgal, the four realizations, how this is maps on. Here are the, here are the, the ten bumis. Here, and so he, he superimposed map on map on map, so you can see how they all fit together. It's quite spectacular. But again, where, where have they gone? Where have they gone? There are a lot of excellent teachers, a lot of excellent yogis, but where's the path gone? Where's the on-ramp? I was reading one reference by one lama, referring to another lama, both of them very, very fine lamas. I, I won't say the names, but they're both very fine lamas. One I know by reputation, one I know personally. They're both very, very fine. And one referred to the other lama, is this, oh, such and such lama, he's, he's achieved everything. He's achieved stage of generation, stage of completion, he's done it all. Wow. Means he's a Buddha. I remember another lama referring to another lama, who was his lama, and he said of his lama, "Oh, my lama has come to, com to the culmination of stage degeneration and completion." Wow. Eventually, the lama's lama passed away. He was reborn. He was identified. I never, I never met the tuku, but I know people who did. So here's the tuku of the person who had come to the, the culmination of stage degeneration and completion. Pretty impressive. The tuku was identified, became a monk. Frankly, he was a pretty cruddy monk. Mm -hmm. And then she showed an awful lot of interest in material stuff, and really no interest in dharma. Gave back his precepts, left the, left the monastery, displayed no interest in dharma at all, and got an ordinary job and has kind of disappeared into the fabric. So that's interesting. So shall I just hold on to the faith that he's a Buddha, that lost all interest in Dharma, left monastery, stopped studying, stopped anything, just has immersed himself in a fairly mundane job, but he's still a Buddha. At what point do we say this is just stupid blind faith? Because there is such a thing. And so, At what point does faith come in, and what point does just flat-out intelligence? Where's the evidence? Kind of that kind of question come in. Okay, this lama's achieved stage of generation, stage of completion. Good. Why do you say that? Somebody just referred to somebody else. Like, I'm going to keep it all vague because who knows? Maybe all of these claims are true. But somebody just referred to somebody who died and said, "Oh yeah, this person was extremely highly advanced on the stage of Tutgel, direct crossing over, undoubtedly will achieve enlightenment in the bardo." And I heard that. I said, wow, that's impressive. Where were the signs? When the person died, um, clear light of death, rainbow body? Did the body shrink down like in some of the great masters? Total silence. Oh, we just have to, we have to believe that because somebody said so. And by the way, the person's last name was Tuku. So, this brings in a central Buddhist theme of balance. You might recall the five powers, the five faculties how we need to balance samadhi with effort and enthusiasm. 
How we need to balance faith with intelligence. And then mindfulness is that which helps balance all the other four. Right? Strikes me as being enormously important nowadays. It's always been important. When more important, when Dharma is making its Buddha Dharma, especially Tibetan Buddhist Dharma, is making its debut on, debut on the world stage for the first time. It's only the last 50 years or so. Finally coming out. Hello, I've been hiding for 2,500 years, you know, Indo-Tibetan current. Here I am, here we are. Hi, I'm Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and so forth. Making its debut, it strikes me that when it makes its debut, it's now becoming global phenomenon, has become global phenomenon already. The balance between faith and intelligence seems to be extremely critical. Extremely critical. And that is what I'd love to hear is such and such a yogi practice for 20 years single-pointedly doing 16 hours a day of meditation like Gyanlam Rinpa is meditating from 5 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock in the morning. People like that who meditate for 10, I mean, not only professional, you know, just like professional astronomers, neuroscientists, and so forth, absolutely professional, full-time contemplatives putting in the hours over the decades and after 10, 20, 30 years of full-time practice coming out, and some, some lama saying of that one, someone who really knows what's going on, oh, such and such a yogi, Yogi Tenzin, has achieved the path of preparation. That would blow me away. I say, wow, now that's impressive. Such and such a yogi has achieved Mahayanapathic accumulation, irreversible bodhicitta. Whoa, impressive. Such and such a yogi has achieved the path of seeing. Man, that's impressive. And here's the evidence, by the way. That I'd love to hear. But what is much more common is we have the proletariat of people who are nowhere, and then we have the lamas who are fully enlightened. There's nothing in between. Where the five paths? Where the ten bumis go? Where does anybody ever get in between? It looks like you're either a serf or you're royalty. But then how do serfs ever become royalty? And how, do royalty ever become serfs? What about the one who achieved stage of generation and completion and then came back in his lifetime and looked like a serf to me? So balance. Why well, I've been very careful to avoid any name or any way you could guess about any, any person I've referred to. It's because who knows, maybe it's true. Buddhas will manifest in all different ways. I do believe that. That they don't all come out with 32 major, you know, 80 minor marks and so forth. They don't always display. Miller Abbott didn't have any special marks. He was green. <laughs> That's not one of the 32 major minor marks, you know. Really skinny. Two young ladies walking by seeing this skinny, greenish looking guy. And the two ladies looked at him and said, gosh. One said to the other, I hope we don't become like him. You know, and Milarepa, of course, overheard them and said, Don't worry, ladies, you won't. <laughs> so, he didn't look like a Buddha. He looked like more like Frodo. <laughs> but nevertheless, inside, there he was. And he really did display, according to all accounts of his life, he was absolutely genuine. One of the most remarkable things. I say this with faith. But he displayed. He gained realization, but he displayed. One of my favorite stories from Miller Epa's life 
was when he was watching, walking, I think it was with Rechumba. Could have been Gambopa, but I think it was Rechumba. The two, Rechumba being one of his two principal disciples with Gambopa. And the two are walking out there in, in Tibet. It started to rain. And Rechumba is walking in front of his master. Melarepa walking behind. Remember this story? And it starts to rain. Rechumba is walking along, walking, getting wet. And then he looks around for his guru. He didn't see his guru. Where did his guru go? And then he looked again. And he looked behind him, and there was a, a, a ram's horn, an empty ram's horn, hollow, yeah? And he looked at the ram's horn, and I can't imagine how it would have perceived, but I can imagine some really good special effects to try to get this across. It was kind of like, ooh, 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 ooh. Because he was seeing Millerapa life-size, and the ram's horn was not any bigger. Millerapa life-size was in the ram's horn, but the ram's horn was still the ram's horn size a distortion of space. Milarepa seemed totally normal size, and the ram's horn was still small, and Milarepa was inside the ram's horn. That is said to be an indicator. Only a Buddha can do that. If you're an ordinary magician, then you just pop into a ram's horn, and you're a little teeny, you know. But that's just magic. What Milarepa did, that was over the top. That was over the top. So evidence, evidence if claims are to be made. So here's where the balance is. Out of, and I won't go into a long tangent here, time is passing quickly, but there's this whole field of Guru Yoga, and many of you have been exposed to such teachings. I'll be actually addressing this topic in Karetro. Yeah. Three levels, I'm just going to stick with Guru Yoga, but three levels, Shravakayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Dzogchen. In the context of Vajrayana practice and Dzogchen practice, you look upon your Guru as a Buddha but it's rich, it's seeped in very, very deep insight. So it's not just, okay, I'm going to really drum up and I have some really strong blind faith here. It's actually very, very deep. And it is not authentic unless one really approaches this with very deep insight. Emptiness, rikpa, and so forth. Then it can be absolutely authentic. But that means whoever your guru is, if it's an authentic Vajrayana guru, regardless of that guru's specific qualities, whether that specific person has achieved shamad or vipassana, has achieved stage of generation, completion, tektrut or tutgal, if the lama is authentic and that bond is there, then it is authentic, and I say this with faith, to regard your guru as a Buddha. I won't explain all the ramifications behind that or how that can possibly be intelligible, but there it is. And that's speaking out of faith. And a faith may be rooted in very deep insight and realization. And so this is where the references come from so many lamas referring to their lamas or any other lama that they really respect, is such and such a lama has come to the culmination of stage, and ge- stage of generation and completion. Such and such a lama has come to cu- culmination of, of Tetchut and Turkel. You know, they just, whoa, whoa, whoa. They always wind up being cu- culmination. Why? Because they're applying pure vision. Pure vision, pure Guru Yoga. Tremendous blessing in that. So that's faith. That's faith. But on the other hand, there is intelligence. And that is okay with one's guru, special case. That needs a lot of understanding. But when it comes to other people, another person I heard, one person referring to another, saying, oh, such and such. Actually, I heard this recently. One, it's a monk, a monk. And some, some lama referred to, oh, he's an eight-stage bodhisattva. Okay, at least something, it wasn't full Buddha. He <laughs> <laughs> got shortchanged. <laughs> Didn't get the ninth stage or the tenth. But eight-stage bodhisattva, if you read about that, it's just, it's, it's, it staggers the imagination. You almost, have, you almost have a stroke. 
hearing about the qualities of a person at a bodhisattva level. And I heard that. Actually, I know the person who's being referred to. Very nice person. But why on earth did you say that? Does this mean you're a Buddha? Because you can recognize somebody on the eighth bodhisattva level? Are you a Buddha? Is that how? Because how, how else would you know that? You'd have to be on the eighth bodhisattva level or higher, presumably, or at least up there in the ballpark, to, say, to point to Jack and say, Jack is on the eighth bodhisattva level. How do you know that? Students don't ask. Any more than they asked about this person, oh, a person so far advanced along the direct crossing over, he's going to achieve enlightenment in the bardo. How do you know that? What was the evidence? Why do you say that? They don't ask. So what's going on here? Are we no longer taking the past and the bumi seriously? Or are we just become a, a religion of blind faith? And then we leave all the skeptics outside to laugh at us because we're so stupid and uncritical, naive. And then they, they have every right to be skeptical because you, you believe all this stuff, you've got no evidence at all. Yeah, you're religious, you're really religious in the worst sense of the term. Whatever you hear, swallow it like a baby swallows pablum. You know, is that what Buddhism has gotten to? So balance, balance, balance. If there's too much skepticism, then we never develop any real enthusiasm, any real zeal to find out for ourselves. Especially if we recall this wonderful maxim from William James, there are some things that become true only if you believe they are true. Boy, do I believe that's true. It's true in so many contexts, and it's not a leap of faith, it's, a, it's an empirical fact that some things become true only if you believe they can be true or they are true, and then they become true. Other things don't become true by believing it doesn't matter what you believe. The inver- and he gave, I think it was the example of the inverse square law of gravity. It doesn't matter what you believe. Believe it's an inverse cube law, it doesn't matter. I do believe, I pray to the Buddha that, the, you know, well, it's not going to happen. It's the inverse square, not cube. So some things just doesn't matter what you believe. But some things, can you achieve shamatha? How about that little question? Well, if you believe, probably not. No, because I'm a person of dull faculties, and um, I'm not one of those special people. I'm not one of the special people. I'm one of the ordinary people. And we all know that ordinary people don't achieve special things. So, but I hope in a future life, I'll be a special person. You know? Well, then you've just sealed your fate. Great, because if you believe you won't, you won't. Almost certainly. The chances are almost negligible. So you won't, because you'll never get the enthusiasm. You'll never put in the time. You'll never apply yourself. Why? Because you've already decided you can't do it. So, you believed you couldn't, lo and behold, you can't. Congratulations. You know, that's a type of sterile, complacent skepticism that goes nowhere. Whereas skepticism that's balanced with faith, balanced with an eagerness to know, leaves us restless, leaves us another kind of sacred tension. I'm not so complacent. Oh, everything my Lama says is true. He's omniscient. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Didn't need a swallow because everything my Lama says is true. Great for a three-year-old, you know, but not so good for adults. And so there's one kind of complacency. And the other is something I just read in the latest overall good report article. And this will be my last point. Uh, I just got it this afternoon. It's the, the best account I've seen recently, up-to-date account of the Shamatha Project. Somebody asked. It'll be posted on the Santa Barbara Institute website, published in the University of California Davis uh, newspaper online. And nice report. And it actually gives the most up-to-date account of how the research is going. And, but how it starts, 
how it starts. <sighs> is until now we've heard various anecdotes about meditation and its benefits. There have just been anecdotes. But now scientists are getting involved. And now we know. <laughs> 2,500 years, starting with the Buddha, of 100 generations of adepts throughout China, India, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, devoting themselves, many of them heart and soul, for 100 generations, exploring, putting to the test of experience a myriad of meditative practices. And what we got was anecdotes. I hope, very shortly, a statement like that, but now the, science are finding, now the scientists are finding out what's really going on. I hope very soon a statement like that will be similar to, oh, Negroes are really, and then I'm not going to fill in the sentence, but just think of some of the really awful generalizations that have been made about Latinos, about Americans, about Germans, about Chinese, that are racist, stupid, and disgusting, and ethnocentric, arrogant, and just, I want to emphasize, contemptible statements, right? I hope this, this will be fit into that category very soon, because it's no better. To look at a whole civilization, multiple civilizations, and say really flat out all they came up with is anecdotes. But now over the last 10 years, now that we have some white scientists involved, studying behavior and blood and so forth, now we're getting somewhere. I find that disgusting. Just because I loathe ethnocentricity, I loathe racism, I loathe bigotry, and that means, that, to my mind, that little sentence there just wrapped it all up. And so I love what the scientists done, and the scientists did not say that. Cliff Saron, at the end of the first Shamatha retreat, he said, we don't need science to demonstrate what has happened in this first retreat, because it's already obvious. The meditators in that first three-month three retreat, they know, and we know also, without being scientists, this was a terrifically beneficial retreat. Now we're going to collect the data and try to analyze it. But that was humility, and it was also realism. Because those meditators at the end of a three-month retreat were not waiting, oh gosh, I hope it turned out well. <laughs> I don't know whether my meditation went well. All I've got is anecdotes. But I hope that the blood samples came out really good. You know. So Cliff was realistic and humble, but it was the same old, same old. And it fits right into the groove of the only way to understand meditation is by understanding its underlying neural correlates or mechanisms. There's the word, my favorite phrase underlying neural mechanisms. Meditation is a little fluff that lights uh, on top of the underlying, when she say it in a very deep voice, meditation. <laughs> Beneath it is the underlying neural mechanisms of meditation. <laughs> the fluff on top. One of the uh, senior researchers in the team, not Cliff Saran, uh, seeing, and I can give you the thumbnail, uh, just from the data they've collected now, they're coming out with three or four papers, another 15 or so will come out eventually, and the scientists are thrilled. The team are really, really happy. They've come out with now clear empirical evidence that attention, three, three months of what we're doing here, develops and enhances perceptual skills, which in turn then lead to enhancement of attention skills. That's clear. Paper is published. Second one, uh, meditation of exactly what we're doing here is, is turns out to be very helpful for, for emotional regulation and dealing with adversity in an emotionally more balanced way. Fact. 
scientists now, of course, we've known this for 2,500 years, but it's nice that the scientists are also getting empirical evidence. I say that with no sarcasm at all. Third one, that was not clear from first-person perspective, because they were doing it by taking blood samples, is there's now evidence based upon first-rate research with a Nobel laureate as part of the, cons the consulting team that the type of meditation we're doing here is correlated with increase, increase of longevity. That's good, uh, longevity. It has to do with, an, an, I think it's an enzyme, an enzyme, tel, uh, telomer, telomerase, tel, telomerase? Tel, tel, telomeres, thank you, telomeres, exactly right. Uh, so I can't go into detail, the paper isn't out yet, but that statement came in public so I can say it. You know, it influences the telomeres, which then is, the way it influences is it's correlated to increased longevity. So, and that's, and the show isn't over yet, that's just three or four papers coming out, we'll have a whole bunch more. And the scientists are really very excited about what they're seeing. Uh, one of the senior scientists, a very, very bright man, a very nice man also, and very giving. I mean, I find him to be extraordinarily generous with his, as, as a professional, extremely generous with his time to his students and so forth. Very fine scholar, very erudite. Um, he knows, of course, about all the research and the findings coming out, and he said, um, I just want to know how meditation works, but I don't want to practice it. And this is after getting all the information about perception, attention, longevity, emotional regulation, dealing with adversity. I just want to know how it works. I don't want to practice it. America is, in terms of contemplative practice, to say that it's a third world country is way too lofty a statement. It's way below a third world country. It's an impoverished country. It's like the Sahara. It's like a barren wasteland. I mean, I didn't know if you know this, but actually most Americans don't meditate. <laughs> Here in the nation of the Mind Center, you'll notice that most people meditate. And that's, of course, that's sane. But in America, it's a sad truth. I haven't seen it really publicized widely, but in America, most people don't meditate. You know. It's an impoverished country, heavily impoverished. You know, dying of starvation contemplatively, really terribly whacked, whacked out because of uh, you know, very poor diet, no meditation food. You know? And so hearing a statement like that, it's kind of like a person who's out in the sub-Sahara, barely, barely surviving. And hearing that um, there are countries where people really eat regularly, three times a day. And it's just anecdotal, but there's word out, I mean, the anecdote were that eating is actually really good for you, you know? And now in this sub-Saharan sub wasteland where people are basically, you know, their bellies bloating out, dying of starvation right, left, and center, there are anecdotes that eating is actually good for you, and we've done some studies, and it indicates eating is better than not eating, you know? And one of the persons doing the research said, yeah, they say that eating is good, but I just want to know about eating. I don't want to eat. To my mind, that's a close parallel. Oh, yeah. So let's achieve balance. And let's eat well, a good rounded diet, so we can become healthy.
Let's settle the body, speech, and mind in a state of equipoise. The body balanced between relaxation and vigilance. The breath effortless and uninhibited. The mind at ease and clear. All of these sustained with stillness. Stillness of the body, stillness of the mind, apart from the natural flow of the breath.
Rest your awareness in space. And from this vantage point, attend to yourself as a human being, a sentient being. Wishing for happiness and freedom from suffering. And having the potential to realize these aspirations while at the same time afflicted and obscured by various toxins of the mind. Attend to yourself in your whole bandwidth, from your worst days to your best days, to the benevolent, from the benevolent moments to the more malevolent or confused. However your mind and your behavior are manifesting from day to day, moment to moment. Attend to yourself as an individual worthy of finding happiness and freedom from suffering. And breathe out and breathe in from this orb of light at your heart with every out-breath Arouse the yearning, may I be truly well and happy. Breathing out the light of loving kindness. With every in-breath, may I be free of suffering and its causes. And breathe in all the darkness that obscures the radiant purity of your own awareness. And dissolve it without trace in your heart.
Imagine the darkness subsiding, the light completely filling, suffusing, becoming indivisible from your form, your body. Imagine freedom. And imagine your own fulfillment. The realization of your heart's desire. Recall in this morning's meditation, where we expand the space of awareness up and to the right and left and down to the heart and out into space. This was the cognitive expansion. And now let's expand in the spirit of loving kindness and compassion, of equanimity. Expand the field of your awareness the field of caring, of loving kindness and compassion. To embrace the persons around you, in front and behind, to the left and right. Attending to each one as a sentient being like yourself. Breathe out, breathe in as before. Imagine each one around you becoming free and finding the happiness they seek.
expand the field. Embracing the surrounding countryside and all the human beings and other sentient beings within our proximity, each one moving about, each one in pursuit of happiness, wishing to be free of danger, free of suffering and pain. Breathe in, breathe out, as before. Imagine it to be so. And as you continue to expand the field of your awareness, you may, if you wish, arouse the aspirations according to the classic liturgy. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of attachment to those who are near and aversion to those who are far and abide in equanimity? May they be free and abide in such equanimity. May I enable them to do so. And for the sake of completion, may the Lama and the Deity bless me that this may be so.
as you continue to expand the field. On occasion, perhaps well, due to what you would call mind wandering, perhaps someone specific will come to mind, someone nearby or far away, whoever might crop up, whatever individual might adventitiously arise in the space of your awareness. Invite this person in, attend to the person, in the same spirit of even-heartedness. Breathe out, breathe in. Expand the field of awareness above and below to all the sides without limit, excluding no one. And imagine all beings becoming free of suffering and its causes. And realizing their innermost heart's desire. then release all appearances. Withdraw your awareness away from all appearances, objects of the mind, and even the space of awareness. And let your awareness rest in its own place, illuminating its own nature.
Monazón. Insofar as we really devote ourselves to Dharma practice, we must be doing so for a reason, not just because you know, we're bored or there's nothing got on television. And so if we're practicing, and more than you know, just a little band-aid here and there you know, to relieve a little bit of stress or anxiety, but really seriously considering about following the path to enlightenment, then it's good to know if one's really practicing, what are some of the indications that one's practice is working? A really pra pragmatic question, utterly pragmatic. You're devoting an hour a day, half an hour a day, two hours a day, whatever. You could have been doing something else. You could have been doing some social work. You could have been gardening. You could have been raising some food. Whatever, you could have done, been doing something practical. But you were practicing Dharma. You were just meditating. And of course, meditation and, and, and Dharma are not the same. But let's say for formal practice. There are indicators that which would be really good to be checking up. Is the practice working or not? I know one person, one of the saddest things I heard, one of this, in terms of, not within context of Buddha Dharma, but there was one person I heard about pra practicing, the Lama's very good, the Lama's impeccable, practicing with the Sangha and going for pujas, going for rituals, receiving lots and lots of initiations, oral transmissions, Vajrayana this, Vajrayana that, you know, all kinds of esoteric stuff. And uh, after something like 20 years, then it finally dawned on this person to take, take stock and see, well, was there any benefit? And then this person concluded there wasn't, got really pissed off, got really pissed off, became very abusive of the Vilama, very abusive of the whole Sangha, completely abandoned Buddha Dharma with disgust, contempt, theft also. Um, and I just thought, whoa, how sad. You just wasted 20 years of your life. You never even noticed it wasn't being beneficial. And you blame other people for this. It took you 20 years? What were you, an imbecile? Were you senile all the way through? What was your problem? Didn't you take any responsibility for your practice at all, and now you're blaming the Lama? Jeez, give me a break. Really sad. I mean, I do speak with a little bit, of, I, I do speak with contempt of that behavior. That's, oh, come on. We should be evaluating from week to week, month to month, year to year. How's the practice going? Is it beneficial or not? Well, for shamatha, it's transparent, right? If there's a greater sense of ease, stability, and, and vividness, it's working. If it's not, it's not working. I don't care whether it's Vajrayana or Sutrahinayana, Mahayana or Balonayana. If it's not working, it's not working. It doesn't matter whether you're following, you know, it's just, if it's not working, it's not working, and we can all, each of us has the principal responsibility to see, to see for ourselves, is it working? Because if this is important to cultivate these qualities, then it's, it, it's, the burden is on us. Hey, make it work. All right? And likewise with the four measurables, they're transparent. We know what the near enemies are, the far enemies are, we see that they're clear, they're good. Are these practices alleviating, counteracting the distant enemies, the far enemies, less malice, less cruelty, and so forth and so on? Are they cultivating the realm of quake? Good. If they're working, they're working. That's what Dharma is all about. Overall, because I do want to have time for discussion within about a minute, but overall, here's something I heard a long time ago about just a good, if you, if you want something quick, something quick and snappy, is my practice working or not? 
whether you're just doing mindfulness of breathing, you're practicing Vipassana, Zen, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, Poa, Tumo, whatever it may be, here's a sign that your Dharma practice is working. You ready for a one-liner? This is really valuable. Are you overall maintaining a greater sense of imperturbability? In res- imperturbability in response to, in the face of the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life. There are bad days. There are good days. You meet awful people, meet wonderful people. You're in bad health, you're in good health. You're young, you're old. You, you acquire and you lose, and so forth. But in the midst of all the stuff that reality dishes up, are you, over the course of months and years of practice, do you find an overall greater sense of equilibrium? balance, that you're not so easily upset. You deal. It doesn't mean you're lethargic. It doesn't mean any apathetic, nothing remotely like that. It just means that your mind doesn't go topsy-turvy. You're bringing more and more maturity, balance, equilibrium, calm, composure to whatever's dished up. That's a sign that the Dharma is really working. And if after months or years of practice, one is still as emotionally un- unstable, still responds with the same degree of hope and fear, and I like it, I don't like it, up and down, up and up, then whatever you're practicing, I don't know, do we call it Dharma? Why? It should be really helping in these practical ways. So, I heard that a long time ago. I think it's true. So, Dharma should help. It's nourishment. It should nourish us. Really simple. And if the scientists can help us, that's great. Help us to know, because sometimes we can be self-deluded about our own practice. It does happen. So welcome those who want to study the behavior, study the phenomena themselves, study blood chemistry, study EEG and so forth. Let's all work together. That Dharma can be as maximally beneficial as possible for everybody's benefit. So I think that's what the big deal is about, this whole interface between science and Buddhism that there can just be greater benefit all the way around. For little children learning mindfulness in kindergarten to people going off in 20-year retreats and achieving rainbow body and everything in between. Good. So, questions that are practice-related, now that I've just rambled on and on and on. Yes, Patricia, microphone coming. Well, this is a personal uh, question in regards of uh, the time. Time. Sometimes, uh, not sometimes, every night I I wake up, almost every night, I wake up very early, like at 3 o'clock. You wake up around 3 o'clock? Yeah. But I've been said that practicing at that time is not recommendable because of spirits and ghosts. I couldn't, like I couldn't understand the because lessons. Because there are spirits around. Because there are spirits. At, at yeah. So especially don't practice it, that time. Don't practice it at 3 o'clock because there are spirits. Yeah. Then who, who I can this? go back. Who, who said this? Well, somebody. somebody. Okay, it doesn't matter who. Somebody said, don't practice at 3 o'clock, yeah. there are spirits. Okay? Then I. There's like a gap in time that I can practice. I, I am clear. Then I can go to sleep. And I go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. But. Now I am avoiding to do it because I am afraid it could be true. That's why I'm uh-huh. asking. Yeah. 
Sorry for the question. <laughs> Spirits don't become non-existent at 3.30. <laughs> and if they go someplace else, where do they go? Because then they'll be there at 3.30, in which case you need to tell people there the spirits just arrived because they left our place at 3 o'clock. <laughs> So spirits are here all, all the time. Spirits are always around. And send them all the loving kindness you can. And if you don't believe it, they probably don't mind. You know? So I have heard, I've never heard about 3 o'clock. Yeah, well, if there's spirits, uh, good 3 o'clock then is a really good time for OCDD. And if you want to get anger and just not practice Dharma at all, get really lusty, angry, jealous, flip out with OCDD and uh, lose all your faith at 3 o'clock because you, know, you shouldn't be practicing Dharma then. It's kind of silly. It's kind of silly. What does it mean to practice Dharma? I think it's kind of sometimes the zoom lens coming out, coming out. What does it mean to practice Dharma? Oh, I remember. Avoid engaging in un any unwholesome behavior whatsoever. Apply yourself to virtue and thoroughly subdue your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. But don't do it at 3 o'clock. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Not at noon. I've heard noon. I've heard dawn. I've heard midnight. And I don't think this is all superstition. There are very likely certain practices for which you might want to take a break from a particular type of formal practice on those occasions, just because of the, the balance of the energies, the sun, the moon, and so forth, and the corresponding microcosmic, you know, microcosm within the body. So I don't ridicule that at all. It's very subtle, and frankly, it's beyond what I can sense from my own experience. But what I don't do is say, oh, I can't experience it, therefore it's not true. That, I just absolutely do not, do not go there. So might there be times throughout the course of the day, what I've heard is sun, sunrise, noon, and sunset, and midnight, those four times, because they're really natural times. Those times I've heard there are some types of very specific forms of meditation, better not to do those right on those occasions because of the balance of outer and inner energies. But then to, and maybe 3 o'clock, but gosh, we're, we're getting a bit crowded in here. <laughs> Not 3 o'clock, how about 9 o'clock? 3 o'clock no good, my 9 o'clock probably no good. And 3 o'clock in the afternoon also? Uh, what, what's the bandwidth? I mean, only within a second or 15 minutes, or maybe is it half an hour? In which case, I think I just got a vacation from Dharma all the way around, because <laughs> there's always an excuse for not practicing Dharma. And so... There is no time, whether dreaming, deep sleep, or the waking state, whether alive, dying, or in the bardo, when it's best not to practice dharma. There may be specific meditative practices for which, on a very subtle level, it would be better not to practice at specific times, like 3 o'clock, whatever. Fine. But then we need to know exactly what we are referring to. Exactly. And for how long? Are we talking about a five minute before and after? One minute before and after? Bear in mind, in Tibet, they didn't have clocks. Moreover, how did they know it was 3 o'clock? No, how did, in Tibet, before they had clocks, how did they know it was 3 o'clock? Because maybe it's, what, halfway between new, um, uh, midday and sunset? Well, we know that's not always 3 o'clock. You know? I love the stories about the, the first aristocrats in Lhasa in the 1950s, I think, maybe a bit earlier. The first ones, they had money. And so they could buy wristwatches. And there are only two types of wristwatches. 
they cared about. Rolex, number one. Omega, number two. These are aristocrats. You know, they had money. But everybody knew Rolex is number one. Omega, number two. If you're going to get a wristwatch, I mean, they're, you know, get one of those too. But of course, there you are in Plaza, and you might know somebody who knows somebody who has a wristwatch. <laughs> How do you know what time it is? <laughs> You've got a wristwatch, but what do you set it by? <laughs> do, you, do you hike five miles to the nearest guy with it, you know, another aristocrat in the, in the neighboring? What's your time? I don't know. I was hoping to ask you. <laughs> you know? So it's just a really cool piece of jewelry with little to <laughs> And you know what the monks say? It's time to practice Dharma. Anytime, any day, anytime. And especially when it comes to Dzogchen. This type of talk is really Vajrayana talk. There's specific times of the day when better not to do specific types of meditative practice. And that I don't laugh at at all. It's you know, very subtle, beyond me. But having said that, but for Sutrayana, when is the time not to practice bodhicitta, not to balance your mind in shamatha, not to cultivate the four measurables, not to develop bodhicitta, not to practice the six perfections? Oh, come on. That's got to be 24-7, right? So it's only some very specific meditations in Vajrayana for which this might be relevant. But now let's go to the pinnacle of Adriana, according to the Dzogchen tradition. Uh, well, when you go into Mahamudra and Dzogchen, there is just one taste all the way through and you never stop. There is no time not to practice Dzogchen. There's no realm of existence in which not to practice Dzogchen. Okay, it's all, always. So that's that. So if you want to trace that, then you might want, I, I think, again, this is where faith and skepticism, faith and intelligence really come in. Uh, who said it? Why did you say it? What's your basis? And what type of practice you're referring to? Because otherwise, what happens here is faith just snuffs out intelligence. And that's why I was making a fun, fun a little bit. Because, hey, we've got to balance this with intelligence, know exactly what was meant by that. And is it just somebody said, who's the somebody? As people say all kinds of silly things, including Tibetans. So, it's that. But for the practices we're doing, there's no, no time when it's better to have laxity and excitation rather than stability and vividness and no time when it's better to have any of the opposites of the four measurables rather than loving kindness and so on so you can practice any time at all okay Good. oh yeah anything else a little quickie yes Maria Do you know <clears throat> on what does it depend that um, attention is better or worse along the day? Because I've noticed, oh, yeah. I've noticed that at a specific hour, mm -hmm. I'm like very dull and very mm -hmm. or very agitated, and yeah. I can, it's very hard to concentrate or sure. or such sharp and. Mm -hmm. Yep, no question about it. That is certainly true, and what I've noted, uh, I've known it for quite some time because I've you know, been around for a while, but even in this retreat, what's really, really obvious is people's bodies, body, 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 minds are really different. So some people are really, really morning persons. I'm a morning person. I really like to start at 
When I wake up at 3.20 or so, I said, ah, good, right on time. And then I can start with three hours, and then I go for a walk, and then I do more practice, and then, have breakfast. They do more practice before the morning session. I really like it that way, but it doesn't always work out. Sometimes I sleep until 4.30. Sometimes I wake up at 2.30, and I know, I know I don't have quite enough yet. And I try to get back to sleep, and if I can't, well, I try to maintain some equilibrium, and then fully you know, start the day at 3.30 or so. But I'm a morning person. Other people, those morning hours are not much good at all, but they love the afternoon or the evening hours, right? My wife is just the opposite. She's a night bird. She'll, she'll often stay up until midnight, one o'clock. So there have been occasions when she'll, what does she do? She'll go to bed about one hour before I wake up. <laughs> you know, she'll, she'll be writing some paper, doing research, stop at two o'clock. One hour later, I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go. <laughs> you know? And so uh, neither one of these is better. Neither one of these is better. So, what you do is you take, you take account of your own system and knowing that everyone is unique and then you just learn how to work with that and to try to establish some ongoing practice that you can adapt. So, for example, if during the daytime, now one of the standard things is if you have a big meal at noon, which is if you can have a big meal, that's a good time for it, um, then very, very commonly, about two, three o'clock, there's a biorhythm, then it's just naturally a time to feel sluggish and especially in a hot climate, uh, feel rather dull. In which case, this has been known for a long time in Mexico, in which case, and, and hence the great ancient wisdom of taking a siesta. You know? And I heard Leandro, you probably know Leandro, commenting, because he mentioned this in the three-month retreat, it's very charming the way he said it. He said, because he would feel drowsy, and he said, I'd go into a nap, and my awareness would go, bloop, and just touch the substrate. And then I come out after 20 minutes, half an hour, I feel very refreshed, and then I'd be launching into the rest of the day, and all went well. But he said, didn't want to stay asleep longer than that, longer than half an hour, because then if you come out an hour, an hour and a half after you've fallen asleep, then you still feel kind of uh, still groggy, a bit dull. And scientific research recently has corroborated that. Short naps are good, long naps in the middle of the day, not good unless jet lag or some special circumstances. So. So when you're feeling really drowsy, really, really dull during the daytime, overall, probably it's best to take a nap. Or if you can't, I can't. I, I don't have that ability. I'd like to, but it's not an ability I have. I can't fall asleep during the daytime. Not unless something really like weird, like I've been on a plane for 24 hours. But by and large, I just don't. In which case, well, I just go into the infirmary. I won't sleep, but I'm getting real rest and re resting everything, except for I'm not just you know falling asleep. So. There's an antidote for that, but then overall, because we're not going to be just taking a nap throughout, you know, throughout the whole course of the day, um, on those occasions when we're slipping more into the laxity and the dullness, then that might be an occasion to be more active. So I've mentioned to quite a number of you that when the mind becomes agitated or what have you, you may release that agitation restlessness by going to the infirmary, supine position, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing, or, and that's a way to let the, the energies balance out within the system, enclosed, as you're really attending to the space of the body, or just go out for a walk and let your awareness become large, spacious, be very attentive to the environment, really come to the senses. So both of those is very good for kind of grounding and uh, modulating uh, the energy that gets, gets restless and turbulent. For dullness and laxity, then going for a nice brisk walk, breathing deeply, again, letting the awareness come out spaciously is very helpful. Um, and then finding the right, and going back to the teachings of Ledap Lingba on his one-page teaching on settling the mind, 
then really watching closely for diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. Oh, and the level of, it didn't say this, not in the 19th century, but check the level of air conditioning. And that is, light, uh, coolness is going to help you for overcoming laxity and dullness. If it's too cold, that's, that's not good, right? By the way, Yona made a discovery, which maybe you relate to Glenn by now, and it might be relevant for other people as well. Um, I'm sleeping fine, so I didn't need to know about it, but at least two people here really had some uh, suffering because of the dryness of the air due to the air conditioning. And Yonam has made the discovery that you can, you can, there's some, some knob there that actually adds humidity to the air conditioning system so you don't have to either be hot and sweaty or cold and dry and wake up with, you know, really feeling eyes and feeling really dried out and nasty. And so it's there, and I'd probably rather than everybody piling on Yonam, uh, you might just check with uh, Kun U or Wina in the main office. But if that's an issue for you, that uh, it's, if you don't have the air conditioning on, it's just too hot and sweaty and you can't get a good night's sleep. You turn it on and then it's just too dry, because obviously you can mod modulate the temperature, that's easy. Uh, then there is a way of fi fixing that. So that's really good news. Thank you, Yonam, for finding that out. Okay? What's that? He gave us the transmission. He gave us tr transmission. He did. Well, he gave all, all good. So I'm left out, but then I didn't need it. So jolly good. So that's it, just so be very practical and uh, just try to just kind of go with the flow. That is, when it's excitation, try to find, modify your diet, for example, for excitation, heavier foods, laxity and dullness, lighter foods, salad, fruit, and the like. Uh, so modifying diet, finding the right kind of exercise, finding when it's just best to take a nap, uh, and then there's overall big deal, get enough sleep. And Yogi's advice is, generally speaking, if you can center your sleep, whether it's six hours, eight hours, whatever it may be, if you can center it on midnight, as much before as after, you'll be getting uh, the, the maximum benefit from your sleep overall. So that's, that's actually a good argument for getting to bed early. And, uh, so, and I found that to be true. I found that to be. I really like to get to bed by 9.30 and be fresh as a daisy at, at 3, 3.30. Okay? Hola, so it's 6 o'clock. So, ah, and we have a full day tomorrow just to practice. So enjoy the day. It's so important to enjoy Dharma. It won't always be fun, but if your baseline is enthusiasm, because you see the meaning of it and you see the benefit for yourself, then Dharma's a keeper. Then you won't get dharma out. <laughs> okay. Let's enjoy a good dinner. <laughs>